Oh, Gary. Um, so Daniel went and saw Gary, I believe, Thursday. And um, Gary, from what I understand, has no imminently life-threatening situations, but he does have a stacking of chronic pain issues, sciatica, shingles, the, um, the defib that they put in. And if you know Gary, not working is very hard for him. And he needs to not work for a bit. He's not sleeping because he can't, because the sciatica issue, he can't, he can't get comfortable lying down or standing up. So um, you can pray for, for relief for Gary and, um, and that, that, that one or two or three of these problems would go away. Um, yeah. And thankfully, uh, Mitchell and some others are helping take over some of his mowing work. But he just needs to slow down and he needs to get better. Okay. Yeah, Any, anything else? Okay, let's get started. Psalm 62, any questions? Or did I miss any blanks, Lee? I missed a blank, oh. I missed a blank. Oh, you missed a blank. 1B. 1B, his derision okay. upon his enemies. His derision upon his enemies. Notice the double alliteration going on. Woohoo! getting all fancy. Confidence in affliction, counsel for action. Dr. Street would be so proud of me. Um, yes, Elsa. Can I oh, no, microphone. Uh, may I give an update on the coffee situation? Because oh. I believe you've sent the... By all means, Elsa. Thank you. This I deserves our attention. Yeah, I just want to thank everybody who's been helping. Mm. But now the big tank has been installed so that uh, the difficulty about waiting ten minutes between brews—that's that's gone now. So, and I did. Let, let me pause and explain that. What that means is, up until recently, if you're making coffee, there's a water tank. There's a limit to how much water could be heated at one time. So, if you were making pots, multiple pots, you'd have to pause and let the water reheat. We now have a much larger tank, so there's no need to make coffee. Wait 10, 15 minutes, make more coffee. You can make it all bang, 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 bang. Right. Yeah. And I have updated the instructions. I've put very detailed instructions on the kitchen. Oh, very. I, I put very, very detailed instructions on the kitchen cupboards. So the only thing I'm going to be changing and reprinting yeah. is the piece where we need to wait between brews. So uh, people, you know, if you sign up for coffee, just look at the instructions. I've based them on questions I've had from people, so it's really very detailed. Um, so she it did it. If she says to herself, yeah. she did an excellent job. That's right. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not that much of a detailed person. So let me know if you still have questions, but brewing the coffee should now really be easy. So yes. please sign up. Thanks. Although, although I'll remind you what I remind my son. Never underestimate the power of stupidity. <laughs> there are no foolproof instructions, not the fools I've met. Um, so, but they, they, the instructions should be relatively trustworthy. Um, no, I tell Abner that. You're like, oh, this is foolproof. My like, Abner, you're really underestimating fools. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do not underestimate. Or, or right, 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 right. Okay, questions from Psalm 62, or any holdover materials from training at Appanoos that I didn't get to because I left early. Um, but yes, Dave. Hi, yeah. Um, just clarification question oh. here. 
It's a two-part question. I'll ask both parts. Okay. Um, first is the, you mentioned the word glory and having to do with heaviness, but didn't explain that very much. I tend to think of heaviness. You think of heavy heart and carrying burdens. It doesn't sound like glory, so maybe you'd expound on that. Yes. And second, in verse 9, this just struck me. Maybe there's no connection. It says, in the balances they go up, they are together lighter than breath. Is that to say they have no glory? Or am I making something of that? Sure. Um, great question. First, let me deal with the first one. So the Hebrew word is one of my... I managed to hold on to a fair bit of my Greek, but most of my Hebrew is up in smoke. But one of the few Hebrew words I remember is chavod, weight or heaviness. So Eli, who was fat, was heavy. God is the heaviest of all. It's not that God's... It's, he's got weight. So think of it less in terms of like heavy-hearted and more like treating something lightly. Treating something not lightly would be treating God weighty. So blasphemy is literally taking God's name lightly. It's not in vain. It's taking God's name as if it were a light thing, a word you just throw out for any occasion. This is a heavy name that requires reverence, and that's the picture of weight or glory, heaviness, which also will be tied with stability, um, uh, weight in that sense, not like heavy. Because when you say heavy-hearted, you're taking a metaphorical use of heavy to try to interpret another metaphorical use of heavy. If you take it directly to heaviness, stability, substance, um, as opposed to the contrast of vaporous, that's, that's the difference. So the gods of the nations are vapors. God is heavy. God has glory. God has kavod. Um, so that's, that's the notion of heaviness. And then if you're contrasting man with God, man has no glory. Man has a glory that comes from God. It's the image of God on man. But if you want to put man and God in absolute contrast, then no, man has no glory. The glory man does have is an alien um, place. To, it's not an inherent glory. It is a derivative glory. It's the glory of a mirror reflecting the sun. The mirror has no inherent glory. Now, the mirror shines plenty of glory, but it's only just the sun shining back. That's the picture of you're in my glory. Uh, our... So the reason why it's wrong to kill, according to Genesis 9, um, after the flood, is not because, man, that person is really valuable. That person bears the image of God. How dare you treat lightly the image of God in that man? So yet there is a glory that man has. And, and Psalm, what is it, um, 18? When I think of man, you've made him a little lower than the angels. I mean, there are psalms that celebrate the glory of man. But that glory only exists within a framework where there's a God who's shining and man is reflecting. So if you want to ultimately contrast it, like man apart from God, man in conflict with God, man in opposition to God, no glory. And, but glory, chavod, can also mean weight, substance. And I think when it talks about him going up, it's not the issue of, of glory. It's the issue of his transience. Part of God's glory is his substance and his um, continued existence. Because he's weighty and he's substantive, he doesn't blow away in the wind. He's, he's permanent, he's dependable, he's a rock, he's a fortress. That, that ties in with those notions. That is part of his glory, whereas these men that you might be test, tempted to put your trust in are light, vapor, vaporous, vaporous, vaporeal, I don't know. Um, they blow away. That's, does that sort of answer your question, or am I dodging around? But no, the notion of weight or glory is, is heaviness, um, but the picture is of substance. Even like when you pick up like gold is heavier than other metals. Like you can feel that weight to it. Um, you buy things that are made cheaply and they're light. There's, there's something to that. Well, it's, 
that type of notion pushed even further. Um, does, but that's no, that's that's the idea behind the Hebrew idea of glory. Um, it may seem strange to us to think of it as weight, but yes, yes. Um, I've heard you preaching on glory, and I've heard some other teachers talking about its heaviness. And the word that came to me, they actually used several years ago for politicians, and whether they have substance or not, it's gravitas. Gravitas, perfect. Yeah. Gravitas, yeah. Um, gravitas. That's playing on the same image, too. Well, it's like if you look over the Grand Canyon, and all of a sudden, you, know, you might see it from a distance, but when you put your head up over the edge, if you've ever done that, all of a sudden you're taking the Grand Canyon very seriously. You're taking the threat of falling very seriously. There's all sorts of serious stuff to take about the Grand Canyon when it's right up and close. You are not treating the Grand Canyon lightly. <laughs> and it's sort of, whoa. You know, um, so people have the same response from there. You look up at a star-filled sky. There is something to that vastness and the greatness of it that makes us seem small and light. And that might be the other piece. When you're around something glorious, you yourself seem lighter and more transient and less powerful. So when you're looking at the stars, you're like, I'm just this tiny little speck. I think that also might be tied into the Hebrew notion of glory. When I see the greatness and the gravitas and the size of this other thing, in comparison, I'm dust in the scales. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a chaff being blown by the wind compared to that constellation, that storm, that canyon, whatever. Um, I, think, I think that's kind of the idea as well. But thank you, sir. Naomi? So my question is, um, you said twice, he waits in silence for God alone, and to wait in silence for God alone, in like both one and two. Mm. But we also have seen in past weeks yes. where he has called out upon the Lord oh, yeah. and called on God, and mm -hmm. you even see that with Jesus um, praying to God, like to let the cup pass and things yep. like that. So what is the difference here? Um, is it just a different context, or is he just more at peace? No, great question. Um, the first thing I'd start by saying is this. This is not, Psalm 62 is not the only way to deal with fear and issues of security. It's a way. I was talking to Pastor Daniel about this earlier in the week. One of the dangers you can take with the Psalms is make any of them fully programmatic. And no, precisely, there are Psalms where it's just like, I'm just, morning and day and night, I let out my cry to you, O God. Why are you not here? Wake up, O Lord. Rouse yourself, O Lord. Come to my defense, O God. Hurry, be quick. Does not sound like waiting in silence for God. Fair enough. Um, and so the first thing I simply say is there are times where it's wholly appropriate. to be, Jesus gives the example of the persistent widow or of the, uh, the friend who has the man who has a traveler come at night and he goes and he wakes up his friend. He keeps banging on the door and he won't go away. And those are pictures flat out we're told. He said this, that they, his disciples would pray without ceasing. Um, and yet there are certainly other times where be still and know that I am God and wait patiently for God. Now, part of that, I think, in the context of the psalm itself, when in verse 8, David turns to his audience and says, trust him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. Now, that's not a silent activity. So I think even within Psalm 62, the picture of silence is more of calmness and less of like, shut it. You, you see someone, they're hysterical, right? And, and, and sometimes it's like, Pfft. Stop. Calm down. I tend to think it's more of that picture. I am waiting calmly for God. I am waiting without freaking out for God. But there are psalms where it really looks like David's freaking out. 
Lord, quick, help, come, come, help, help. And there, there clearly are songs and times for that. So that it's wrong to say, okay, Psalm 62 is where you should always be. The other piece I'd say is that because Psalm 62 makes no request upon God, I think it models the peace and the calmness you can have when you have this level of trust in God. And perhaps other Psalms are David fighting for that level of trust. Like David's there. He's serene. He's got these people, these problems. He doesn't ask a thing of God. Right? And all he's doing is make sure you keep trusting God, soul. Keep trusting God. He is experiencing peace. And he's not aware. He's not crying out for with needs. So another way of possibly looking at it is if we could attain to that level of trust, we would also experience that level of peace where we're not, help, 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 help. You know. And there's 150 songs for us, 150 psalms, because we're not always experiencing that level of peace because we're not always exercising that level of trust. So that when you're not exercising that level of trust and your faith is weak, um, there are psalms for that too. The help, help, help psalms as well. But perfect. What I will frequently do when I'm in emotional anguish or turmoil or I'm just, I will read through the psalms until I find one that resonates with where I'm at. There are psalms for when you're desperate and there are psalms for when you're rejoicing. There are psalms for when you're unsettled. There are psalms for when you're, when you're victorious. Um, and so it'd be wrong to take any one psalm and say, here is how you deal with trouble. Well, then why do we have like 50 psalms that deal with trouble? You know what I mean? So Psalm 62 is true, and here is a good and right way of experiencing, of experiencing peace with God in trial. It's not the only way. Um, there, we've seen a number of psalms crying out for help that, that show that as well. So that that's, would be sort of my answer. This is a right way to experience peace. Um, it's not the only way. And it's more a demonstration, I think, of peace than it is... Here's how to get peace. Like, we see the confidence and the trust, and we see the peace. And I think that's an attractive picture. It's okay, hey, let's, let's avail ourselves of that. Let's try to model that. But I wouldn't say fake it. <laughs> um, there are psalms that are the, oh, help, 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 help type that if that's really where you're at, I'd be singing and praying that, personally. No, astute observation, Naomi. One more question um, to follow that. Okay. You have Psalm 33, verse 7 and 20 written here, but I don't understand how it um, Yes, it's fe- one of those is a typo. That. The uh, 33.20 is correct. It should have been 37.3 is the other. And if you look at that, I think it'll make more sense. That would probably um, As I was going over this morning, I realized that I had, uh, I, I had flipped that around in my head when I wrote those notes. <laughs> so the two references should be 37.3 and 30. 320, I believe. Yeah, that does make a lot more sense. There you go. Okay. Good. Keeping me honest. This is good. Oh, Steve. Oh, you're just passing. I'm just holding the mic. Okay. Um, Other questions? Thoughts? Or anything I skipped over from training at Camp Annapolis? Did Daniel do okay? I'm sorry. You guys had to put up with him for that much time, but hey. I know. We were praying for you. Now, for those of you who don't know, one after another, like dominoes, four of my five children got up to 102-degree fevers, and one of them stopped breathing, so we came home. We saw that as a sign, and we just we came home. Uh, no, Renee Lucia gave a rescue breath to Eliana, who literally just stopped breathing. 
So that God was very, very good that day. I mean, he's always good, but I was aware of his goodness in a particular way that day. Um, okay, other thoughts, questions, Psalms. Renee, microphone. It's kind of a trivial question, but um, the ESV leaves out indeed or truly like six times when a lot of the other translations have that in there. And I just wondered if you had encountered that or like maybe a why as to why the ESV leaves that out. Um, It starts with truly. It starts with yes, indeed, for God alone my soul waits. Verse two, the same. Yes, indeed, truly. Yes, I was actually reading that this morning. Um, This is... This is excellent. I just happened to read exactly on this. Um, because of the way the Hebrew, I was actually, I will give you before you go, James Boyce, his commentary on this, he was dealing with this. The Hebrew usage of only, the way it's front-ended, different translations have tried to get the emphatic positioning. So like literally the Hebrew is like, only for God my soul waits. Only from him is my salvation. And so to try to render that emphatic positioning, which doesn't work well in English, some translations have tried. Indeed, truly, that, that's their attempt. It's not a wrong way of doing it. It's just how do we in English express the emphatic construction that occurs in these verses? That's one attempt to do it, and it's, it's a fine one. It's, it's, I get what they're trying to do. The ESV went a different way with it, but what your God is different translations trying to deal with a figure of speech and a construction of speech that isn't easily imitatable in English. That's the short answer. Great question. It was not that trivial, Renee. James Boyce had like half a page on that. I'll show you. Um, who, who else? And, ooh, Joanna Freeland. You spoke, oh, that's loud. You spoke a little bit about self-counsel. Yeah. So how do we strive to self-counsel? And not only that, but how do we encourage others to self-counsel mm. as well? That is a fantastic question. So let me, let me back up and try to unpack what I was said briefly. There, there can be a mystique around um, counselors, counseling, psychologists, that whole thing. Um, because in, since Freud, since the, the 20th century, it's been treated in many cases as a science it's not a science like math is a science. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not a thing. It's, it's very much more like dealing with people and talking. And at the end of the day, all you're really doing most of the time, unless you're dealing with psychotropic drugs, is you are helping people think. And, and we, get the, we get the sense of this. If a child is told by their parent that they don't love them and they're worthless and I wish you were never born, they're told that long enough, they'll start to believe that. That's going to affect how they feel, how they think. It's going to affect their emotional life. If you're told you're a sunbeam every single day um, and that you can do anything, well, as much as that may be well-intentioned, you know, life may teach you otherwise, and that can be frustrating. And so what people are told, what they believe, is going to show up in what they think and, and how they feel and how they live their life. And so I think there can be a mistaken assumption that prior to Freud and the modern school of psychology, there was nothing, which is silly. People have been dealing with issues of security and insecurity and joy and sorrow and depression for as long as humans have been alive. Um, they've been dealing with these things. And what the, so before, 
if you want to jump back to the last people in the church dealing with this, surprisingly, you go back to the Puritans. So one of my favorite books is a book, um, and they'll treat this like a doctor. It's really interesting. John Flavel has a little book called Keeping the Heart. It's fantastic. Has anyone here, I think some of our Bible studies have done it. Anyone, John Flavel, keep Zeb. And here's Flavel. He basically is a Puritan. He comes at it, and he talks about how the heart, classic Puritan exposition, take a quarter of a verse and then suck every bit of marrow out of it. Takes Proverbs, um, keep your heart with all vigilance, for out of it flow the issues of life or the wellspring of life. And so in his classical Puritan exposition, he starts upon the basic principle of the obligation that we must, we have a duty to shepherd and keep our hearts. And then he moves on to what is entailed by this duty. It is in, you know, entails the, the vigilant and alert treatment of the heart. And then after about 15 pages of that, the rest of the book is, okay, how do you do that? And here's what he says. My first remedy, and it sounds like a doctor, my first prescription, and it'll be things to think about, things, truths to meditate on and, and work through in your head for various situations in life. So the point of his book is, how do you keep your heart fixed on the love of God in a tumultuous life? So, so remedies in the times of prosperity, his whole chapter. Here are truths to think about in times of prosperity. Consider the fleetingness of life. Consider the vanity of riches. And, and, and I'm saying in a sentence, he'll take two or three pages with illustrations, unpacking it, and what he's saying is, when life's going well, if you want to keep your heart fixed on God and not drifting over, as Psalm 68, 62 says, when riches increase, you not set your heart on them. How do I guard myself? Probably by reminding myself in my prosperity how fleeting it is. Reminding myself and thinking through examples in life where people have had their money go up in smoke, where people have had their money be no help to them. These are ways you can protect your heart from slowly being pulled over to your wealth. Then there's a section on... Um, Guarding your heart and keeping your heart set on Christ in times of affliction. And then he, then he goes to other biblical truths. And so the whole book really boils down to things to think about, counsel, um, for, for guarding and leading your heart. The problem is we don't even think like this nowadays. There's so much in our media-driven world where we just receive so you just see what's on Facebook, and you receive, and you see what's on TV, and we're almost entirely passive on what we think about and on what we put in front of ourselves. And so counseling yourself is more the opposite. It would be something like, and, and on my better days, or in days where I'm, I'm being more faithful, I'll notice something in my heart. This is what it looks like when it works, and I don't do this all the time. I'll notice some discontent or some irritability or some impatience in me. And okay, what's going on? I, I, and I know enough to know that something's wrong. Um, or my wife might say to me, hey, what's wrong? And then try to figure out what is it that I'm thinking or believing that's leading to this. And then what, what do I need to think on and pray? And sometimes, I, you know, I'm, I'm getting too caught up in X. I had, when Eliana, when Serena, okay, so Serena, recent example of me. Serena took Eliana to the ER because she stopped breathing. And well, she went to urgent care, then urgent care sent her to the ER. Oh. <laughs> She's okay. She had a febrile seizure, is what the doctors think. Um, anyway. And I am a fixer, I'm a doer, and I am waiting at Apneus for reports from my wife and initially not dealing with that terribly well, becoming impatient, becoming anxious. 
And I recognized, in my, in, by God's grace, in that trial, I recognized what was going on. And I, I had to go remind myself, I, I'm ultimately powerless. And even if I was hands-on, there's nothing I can do. She's in God's hands and God's alone. And I hope the doctors help, and I hope the car gets there, but ultimately the only real hope I have for my daughter and her health and her survival is God. And I'm just being reminded now, what's always true and I'm not aware of, my powerlessness in any ultimate sense. And I take five or ten minutes, and I think through that, and I pray, and I remind myself, speak truth to myself, and my spirit calm. I mean, I still was very much concerned for her, but that sort of, I want to be able to do something. I don't like waiting here doing nothing. Calm down. You know, that is self-counsel. That is recognizing truth that you need to take to and, and taking a few minutes to talk yourself to think through it. Um, practically, that might be, I was suggesting obliquely, reading the Exodus story. The Exodus story is very powerfully reminds us of God's power and of his steadfast love, which are the two places this comes to. I mean, man doesn't have power, and man doesn't have steadfast love like God, but God does. And God's going to judge the world. So going, I'm not suggesting Psalm 62 is going to the Exodus encounter. There are certainly Psalms that do go back to the Exodus. But Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt is a perfect example where you could maybe recognize, I need to be reminded of these things. I'm going to read you know, Genesis, I mean Exodus uh, 4 through 9 this afternoon at lunch because I'd, I'd like to be reminded of the power of God and his saving love. Those are some things you can do to lead your mind, instruct your heart. We talk about listening to your heart, like speak to your heart, teach and instruct your heart, Um, speak to yourself. David does this a lot in the Psalm, Psalm 42. Why are you downcast in me, soul? Hope in God, soul. You're speaking back to yourself. And, And I think far too often we're passive and our heart speaks to us. And we just, I don't know what else to do. My heart's saying these things. Speak back to it. Speak truth back to your heart. Anyway. Do you want to go further? That you got the story? I did. You still yeah. got the mic, so I thought you might. Yeah. So. Okay. So if you have someone, or you know someone who hates self-counsel, they have a hard time. They want to actually speak with a person, and not be alone with God and work through that. How yeah. do you how do you counsel them? How do you push them to start working on self-counsel? Um, well, I would. Okay, we're getting. Without oodles of specifics, and I don't like giving thoughts, not oodles of specifics, I would point out to them that God intends on them to to be faithful even when they're not surrounded by people. Now, a lot of counseling comes from other people. I mean, that's one of the reasons, the, the reason the author of Hebrews gives why we need to gather together is that we can encourage each other, which is, again, back to counseling, we, we encourage each other. So you can't survive only on self-counsel. You absolutely need other people to encourage you to speak truth to you. But I would say to such a person, God has given you tools for when you're alone and you're being um, either ungrateful or you are being a poor steward. If you say, well, I don't want to worry about that. I'll just make sure I'm always around people. The second thing I say is, how is that working out for you? Are you truly able to always be around people? I mean, it'd be one thing if you could. Well, then I guess maybe you may not need self-counsel as much, but... I'm guessing most people can't do that. Most people, at the very least, when they're lying in bed and they wake up and they can't go back to sleep and doubts hit them. These are, God's given you these tools. Learn them as well as you can, even as you say, I want to, as much as possible, be around others to be counseled. I still need to learn these skills, even if I'm going to minimize my alone time. That, that's, that's what I would say. Something along those lines. Um, 
Okay. Next. Flavel, F-A-V-F-L-A-V-E-L. I believe it's public domain, and it's on Audible. That's where I first encountered it. Um, by the way, no, let me give a plug for Audible. If you're like me and some of the Puritans are intimidating because they write really long sentences, Audible is fantastic because when you've got a good reader, it, they, they're clear thinking. They really are clear thinking. You and I can trip up on it because this is a long sentence and I'm not what syllable to put the right emphasis on. But a good reader, a good narrator on Audible, it becomes really clear. So I actually, I really enjoy Audible for the Puritan works, which are a lot. I'm right now listening to a guy read um, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And it's probably the third or fourth time. It is so much easier to hear this guy read it. And, and Bunyan's words are so rich and his, his, his dictionary, his diction is so um, full. And it's so easy when someone reads it. You don't notice the old archaic expressions that it's easy to track with because this guy is so excellent at reading. Um, so if, if, if you're intimidated by reading a Puritan, try Audible. There, there's, there's some great Puritan works on Audible. And the Puritans, there were some jerk Puritans, no doubt, but there were some amazing Puritans. And well, the ones who gave like disease-covered skins to the Indians, yeah, the problem is when you're dealing with the Puritans, you're dealing with theocracy. And anytime you're dealing with theocracy, <coughs> the goats need to pretend to be sheep, right? When the entire community is baptized and Christian, then the unbelievers have to fake it too. And so, yeah, there's going to be jerk Puritans, no question about it, you know what I mean? And, and so you're going to hear about them. And there are some amazing Puritans too, so don't throw the baby out with the bathwater um, just because you've heard about some bad reports with the Puritans. There's Thomas Watson and, and Thomas Boston, um, John Flavel, amazing stuff. And all of that's public domain. I'm guessing you can probably find like PDFs of it for free. I'm pretty sure. It's public domain. No, it's public domain. Someone's reading it. Because um, like Banner of Truth and other publishers will put together an edition. But yeah, that's all there. It's fantastic. Fantastic stuff. Um, oh, yes. Going back to the self-counsel thing. Yeah. Um, Throughout scripture, too, can't you see, was Nathan's more of a uh, response to David, was that more of a rebuke, or was that counsel? And Nathan's response to David is a rebuke. It's a trap. Okay. I mean, he traps David. I mean, it, he, it's a sucker punch. Okay. Now, it's, it's a, he's a prophet from God. Told, now, Nathan's got some, some chutzpah, because God tells him to go confront David, who has just killed a man. So we know David's capable of murder. And he's involved in this big cover-up conspiracy. And I got to go tell the guy who David can say, put him to death, and he's put to death. I mean, David does that with the guy who claims to have killed Saul at the beginning of uh, 2 Samuel. The guy who shows up and says, I killed Saul. David's like, okay, what more do we have to hear? Kill him. So David absolutely is, is an absolute potentate monarch. Um, and so Nathan going to him, that takes some guts. And then Nathan... It's a trap. I mean, it's. it's I, I look at it like like a slap to a hysteric. David's so self deceived that I think in in Nathan's wisdom and in the wisdom God gave him, he he's going to need the that's you, which is kind of like slapping a hysterical person. So he draws him out and okay, Dave, there's this guy and he had a sheep and David gets really angry and then basically Nathan says, all that anger that you've got over a sheep, David, <laughs> you did that to a guy's wife. You know, mm -hmm. and I mean, so that 
There's a sense in which that's counsel. He's drawing David's heart out, getting David to say what he thinks about this. Okay, now apply it to this. But it's, it's, a, it's a rebuke. But sometimes rebuke, I mean, counsel, all we do all day is counsel when we talk to each other. We help each other interpret life. It's what we do. Uh, that's one of the things that postmodernism actually gets right. Everything's interpretive. Everything is. Everything's a text. And that's Derrida's quote. And he'll do some interesting things with that idea. But the concept being, we have to interpret life. We have to. And we're going to interpret it with what we believe, what we think, what we think rightly. So C.S. Lewis makes this great example of two different groups of people. Imagine a really shabby room with a bed without sheets and um, the paint's chipping and the, the lamp, one of the bulbs is out and there's a slight smell of mildew in the room and there's the windows looking out of the brick wall and there's noises rumbling by. Imagine two groups of people put in this room. One have been smuggled out of a concentration camp and are told they've got to hang out here for two or three days so they can be gotten out of country. The other think they've paid for a five-star resort. Now, they're to have very different experiences in that room, right? Because what you think and what you're expecting and what you believe and your framework is how you're to interpret that experience. You have to, we interpret. We all interpret. I use this stupid example of if somebody knocks on your door and they've got a, you know, a hockey mask and a knife, depending whether or not it's Halloween or not, is you have to interpret that. You have to, right? And so counsel, what counsel is, is helping us interpret life, interpret what's going on. Um, and what we believe and what we expect and what we think is going to frame all of that. And so even when your friend's telling you about your day, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Well, that's one way of helping them interpret it. You could do another one, what you expect? Or, you know, even the little things we say. So when we go for counseling, it's generally a lot more focused. But all of us give and receive counsel all day. It's all we do. Um, it's, it's all we do. And so because we're all helping each other frame life. Which is why then, getting, I mean, go to Hebrews, go to Hebrews 10. This is, um, what's going on? What? You're on, okay, you're, you're on, you're up, you're in the, you're on bat. No, you're on deck. Deck. Sport, grab fourth. Yeah. Baseball. All right. Baseball. Okay. You're on bat. No, you're on deck. Okay. You're on bat. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. This is the reason... Right? So in, in, you get three lettuces in, in uh, Hebrews 10. Yeah, 22, let us draw near. 23, let us hold fast. And 24, let us consider. And they, they move in progression. Um, so let me read the whole paragraph, okay? So starting in 1019, therefore, brothers, since, so the, the flow of the move is going to be these things are true, and because these things are true, it's behooving upon us to do these things. So since we have a confidence sent to the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So here are the two big truths. We can boldly and confidently draw near, and when we do draw near, our great high priest is there. Because those two things are true, let us draw near. That, that first application seems to flow pretty smoothly right out of that. Since we're welcome to come, and since when we do come, we have a great high priest interceding for us right there, then let us come, right? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith that our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast. So let's come and let's not leave. Let's stay. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That, I think, is an oblique way of talking about something we could call counseling. If I'm giving thought on what I can say to you to encourage you to hold fast and stir you up for love and good works, I am thinking about giving you counsel. Um, let us stir up, consider, let us give thought or consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So one of the, one of the main reasons we gather on Sunday is so we can speak the truth to each other, encourage each other. So that, and the logic is some of us are going to be showing up here strong in faith. Some of us are going to show up here in Psalm, in Psalm 62, faith. We're just, I don't even need to ask God. I'm so confident. I'm just, and some of us are like, ah. And those of us who are having good days and are strong in our faith and, are, and experiencing and well aware of God's goodness and faithfulness can speak and remind those of us who are struggling. And it's going to be different groups each Sunday, each day we get together. Um, so that if you're having a bad day, someone else is having a strong day, and they can speak truth to you and encourage you, and it'll be your turn when you're having a strong day to speak to someone else. And we do that. We gather and we speak the truth. This is the body counseling each itself. Well, I'll get to you. I'll get to you in a moment. Ephesians 4. We're going to Ephesians in the fall, but if I... I, I met a pastor once who said if he could, he'd have this passage tattooed on his eyelids, under the eyelids. So every time I went to bed, he'd see it. I get it. This is, this is one of my favorite passages. This is the purpose of the church, right? This is, this is what's, why is the church on earth? Why isn't Jesus returned? Why do we get together? Here, here's the purpose for the church. Our marching orders, our Magna Carta, if you will. Um, keep, so Ephesians 4, um, pick it up in verse 11. Talking about Jesus ascended, and in ascending, he gave gifts. Okay? That's the context. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers, comma, that comma is really important, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Notice, the work of the ministry is not the work of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Their job is equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Um, the work of the ministry is, is not Greg Sweets and mine and Al Ostrander's and Pastor Daniel's. Well, it is insofar as we're saints. Our job is fundamentally an equipping job and a shepherding and a guarding job. The work of ministry is the bodies, okay? And then he goes on to describe that work, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So another way of describing that work of ministry is the building up of the body of Christ. It's apposition. So he's given these people to the church so the church, the saints can do the work of ministry, which is the building up the body of Christ. Then negatively, oh no, to what degree or to what standard? How Mature does the body of Christ have to be? Maybe sometime in the 4th century it got there and we can stop until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So I guess we've got to keep going. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To, to what degree of maturity? Jesus, that degree. So apparently we've got to keep going. Negatively, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine and human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes, then positively, how do we do this work of ministry to build up the body? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. How does the body mature and grow? When we speak to each other in love, I think that's a way you could speak of counseling. 
from which the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly. This, again, it's not three main people teaching doing this. This is the whole body speaking the truth and love to itself, building itself up. And being held by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow that it builds itself up in love. The body builds itself up in love when each joint, each ligament, each part is speaking the truth and love to the body. That, that's how it grows. Um, it's mutual counseling, if you will. Yes, Carrie. Okay, so we've talked about like being able to pour ourselves out to God, and we've also talked about the importance of like speaking truth and love to each other. So obviously we have to also have opportunities to pour our hearts out to each other in order to actually speak truth to those things. Mm-hmm. So where, like, what's the difference between pouring out our hearts to other people versus pouring out our hearts to God. Like we see value in pouring out our hearts to people. There's appeal in that as far as like a person can look at you and nod along or actually say word audible words back to you where like God is a little harder sometimes to pour our heart out to because like he's not sitting across from you nodding. And so like, where is the balance in that as far as there's value in both, but like, how does that all fit together? Um, well, I think I wouldn't want to put them in contrast. I know where you're getting, and I'll try to get to it. Let me start using harmony before I try to parse it apart. Ideally, the body of Christ as his hands and feet are speaking and acting on his behalf. I mean, that's what we're told ultimately is happening even in, in church membership and church discipline where we welcome those, to those you, Jesus tells the apostles in the church, whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven, maybe bind on earth. Ideally, when things are working properly, those people we embrace and those people we welcome, it's because God is welcoming. Um, the Catholicism gets it backwards as though God were following us. Ideally, we're following him, um, not the other way around. And those whom we say, hey, we can't hang out anymore because you're being disobedient, it's because God has done the same thing. Um, and so in that sense, we're told to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. Um, go to 1 Corinthians 12, where we see that, the importance of that. Um, like, so when I comfort someone who's weeping, Jesus isn't here in the flesh comforting that person, but I can comfort them as his arms and his legs, and the body can, and there's great value in that. Um, so 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 12. Hold on, let me get there. Um, yeah, okay. Verse, uh, nope, that's not it. Hold on. Is it 12? One part suffers. Um, 26? Oh, there it is. Okay, there we go. Thank you. Um, verse 25, let's go back to 25. 24, 24, um, which are more, because I want to grab the first sentence in 24. But God has so composed the body. That's, that's a great statement, by the way. He says it twice in this passage. Um, look at verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members. So God decides what number of fingers and toes and ears and noses each local body gets. God divides it up. God has organized the body. We may be tempted to think the differences mean I mean, I'll, I'll talk to people, and, the, and the, what they're in essence saying is, I need to, I'm a toe, so I need to find toe church. And I'm a hand, I need to find hand church. And I'm an ear, and I need to find ear church. And our, and our, our um, seeker-sensitive movement and our, um, our, uh, the customer is always right, our consumer 
uh, mentality leads us in that direction. I mean, why, if I'm an ear, why should I have to deal with noses? I just find a bunch of other ears who share my same concerns, and uh, we'll just all hang out together. The glory of the body is in its diversity. That's the, the first thing. Verse, I'll go back even further, 14. The body does not consist of one member but of many. The foot should... Now, Paul, Paul's really interested... Jump back even further. First Corinthians, divisions in the body are the big issue. He, he spends the first three chapters addressing it. Members from Chloe's household have told me that there are factions that exist among you, and I believe it in truth. When one of you says, I'm a Peter and I'm a Paul, you've got all these factions running around. And he's dealing with it here. And so he says it both positively and negatively. He's going to rebuke both the person who's tempted to think, I don't belong because I'm not like everyone else here. And he's going to rebuke the people who are proud saying, you don't belong because you're not like us. Both people need to stop it, and the temptation can come from either side. Either jerks can tell people, go find a church where you fit in, not here, that's wrong. Or the person who no one's saying that to them, but they're tempted to think, I'm not like these people, so I'll go find a church where I'm like the people who are there. And Paul's like, no, 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 the glory of this body, the strength of the church is its diversity. Okay, so verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? The body is stronger. The body is more capable because of its diversity of parts. Um, so there's the first example is the, the, the individual thinking I'm not part of the whole. Now we're to deal with the opposite, the whole, looking at an individual part and saying, you're not part of me. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now we flip it around. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the hand to the feet. And we're going to be tempted, I'm sure all, all, everyone in this room is going to be tempted with variations of this, either feeling that you yourself don't fit in, or looking at somebody, don't look around now in the room, but you know, somebody <laughs> who you think, oh, I don't need him, I don't need her. Yeah, you do. In fact, Paul's going to say the... the, the the less presentable they are, the more, the more necessary and crucial they are. That's, that's what he's going to say. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. It's a bold statement. The parts of our body that seem the weakest and most shameful are the indispensable parts. Those parts of the body which we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That's the rationale, which means when I hurt my finger and it's got a Hut, I don't think, well, that's my finger's problem. My entire body is concerned when part of my other body hurts. You know what I mean? All of my body, my, this hand does not say, if you think I'm putting the Band-Aid on the other hand, you got another thing coming. It's not my problem. No, my, my body works in concert, and if my body doesn't work in concert, I go to the doctor and say, something's wrong. My body isn't working. Um, so that's the picture of our concern for each other. One part's suffering, we all suffer. Um, in Galatians 6, Paul talks about fulfilling the law of Christ and bearing one another's burdens. So there's a huge emphasis in us hearing each other, being here for each other. And in our American culture, um, 
which is built upon a rugged individualism. You think of like Ernest Hemingway, the American Adam, that type of thing. And so there can be this sort of don't be weak, don't just step off your lip, you know, that, that whole mentality. That's, that's not biblical. Um, now, there could be a problem of somebody saying, I don't want to talk to God, I just want to talk to his representatives. You press that far enough, you're going to become a Catholic. Like, <laughs> right? You press that far enough, you just, all you're dealing with is a mediation of man. Um, so sure, it, I, I suppose there could be a problem of, I mean, I'll, I'll talk to people for counsel. I'll give, here's some things I want you to think about. I'll be happy to talk to you. I want you to go take some time and talk to God about them. And let's come back and let's talk. And if they came back and it's like, did you talk? Well, actually, I didn't want to talk to God, so I'd talk to you. Okay. Um, <laughs> you press that far enough, you're dealing with Catholicism. Um, and so I don't think there, there ought not to be a pressing either way. I mean, it's getting weird if it's like, can we talk? Well, how much time you spent talking to God? Okay, then you get five minutes. That, that's weird. It's also weird if someone's like avoiding talking to God because they just want to talk to people. I... I I don't know how I diagnose it without a particular case, but yeah, something would seem weird. The emphasis in Hebrews, we have this crazy, crazy access to God. We have this unprecedented access. You, the entire Old Testament um, sacrificial system is Jeremy. emphasizing the holiness of God. It's emphasizing God's otherness. So you, you, have, you get these washings and these oblations, and you can come this close and no further, and then the next group, they can come this close and no further. And you get the high... Of the people who can come close, the priests, one of them, the high priest, once a year can go to the Holy of Holies, and then he skedaddles right out. And we're told we can come right on in there. And so any sort of notion of, yeah, but do I have to, is, okay, I don't think you get it. <laughs> Did you hear me? You have let us draw near. Um, but so, I, so if somebody didn't want to draw near, something's wrong. I don't know if I could tell you what's wrong without talking to that particular case. Something's wrong. Um, I, I just would hate to think it ever has to come down to an either-or. And if it did appear to be an either-or, I'd probably want to ask a whole lot more questions. We are at time. Did, did we have, was somebody else having a microphone wanting to chime in? Oh, Bennett, yes. I am so sorry to interrupt you. You were doing a phenomenal job of uh, preaching. But I do have one thing that... Um, I wanted to say, since I had seizures for pretty much my whole entire life, um, I gotta sit down. I'm sorry. I sit down. Yeah. Um, I comprehend my seizures and said to myself, "I'm gonna have pretty much my seizures unless." God or Jesus um, did a miracle on me. And if I put my faith and hope and all that in me, I know he will heal me. And the point I was going to say earlier, you said... Your little girl had a seizure, a really um, bad kind, actually. I know that kind. It's kind of bad. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'll keep her in my prayer. 
there's also one other kind. Pray that it's not um, forever. Yeah. Well, Bennett, we'll, we'll, we'll close with that. That's, it is true what you said. The Lord, there's a resurrection. And whatever there's also one other thing I no, wanted to tell you. I'll talk to you afterwards, Bennett. We, I got to let these people go because it's time for the thing. Let me, let me pray for you and pray for my daughter, and I'll be happy to talk to you afterwards. There's a resurrection where, Bennett, you won't have seizures anymore, where my daughter won't stop breathing anymore. We can pray and hope that before the resurrection there'll be healing. There may be, there may not be. We certainly can keep asking that the Lord would heal you, Bennett, and, and make your seizures go away. Um, but we can take hope that there, there is an eternal state of affairs where there'll be no sickness, death, disease, or seizures. I'm going to close the word of prayer, and we're going to go to our picnic. Lord, um, I just uh, thank you for the access that we have to you. We thank you that you do not grow weary of our petitions and our requests. You do not grow tired of our repeated um, concerns we bring to you. You do not grow weary as we pour out our hearts to you. Help us to believe that. Um, help us to truly believe that and act as though we believe that. And Lord, um, I just, uh, even thinking of those in our bodies suffering, just pray, um, pray for Vi, that you'd comfort her uh, as she mourns the loss of Dave. Pray for Bennett as she um, would love to be free of seizures. Um, pray for um, our children to grow up strong and healthy. Um, and Lord, most of all, help us to, to keep our hope fixed on you uh, and not turn to the left or the right after other gods, other saviors, but to wait on you and trusting in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can head down to the gym, and I'll be here to chat with anyone who wants to chat any further.